Our reading this morning comes from Psalms 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Well, as I said earlier, we are taking a, a break, a brief break from our study of the Ten Commandments. And so today, this morning, as we study Psalm 95, I would invite you to please keep the, your copy of God's Word there in front of you as we, as we make our way through these verses. Now, if you happen to have that little handout, uh, that'll help as well. But as, as we go through Psalm 95, I want us to keep this question in mind as we read. Why is God worthy of our worship? Why is God worthy of our worship? Maybe, maybe you've asked, asked yourself that question before. Maybe, maybe that question came to mind during a really difficult time in your life, or perhaps that question has never entered your mind at all. But in either case, we, we see our need to be reminded. And that's exactly what this, this psalm is for. This, this psalm is known as a royal psalm. It's, it's used to remind God's people of who their king, who their God is, and why he's worthy to be worshipped. And so, this morning, as we open up the church's oldest hymn book, the psalmist is going to give us three big reasons why God is worthy of our worship, and those reasons are going to be our three points this morning. So God is worthy of our worship because, first, he is our savior, second, because he is our maker, and third, because he is our redeemer. So let's look at that first point. And one of the first things that we notice is the word joy in each of the first two verses. So now, even if all of this is new to you, even, even if you're here today for the first time and you're wondering honestly why you are here, right away, the psalmist is, is giving you a little hint about what you can expect, what the difference will be with worshiping this God, this Lord. And that expectation can be summed up in one word, joy. Joyful worship is something that is, that is unique to the Christian church. You won't find joyful worship in, in a Buddhist temple or a mosque. I saw this uh, firsthand several years ago when I got to visit the Blue Mosque in Istanbul, Turkey. Now, it is a breathtakingly beautiful building. You, you walk up to it and it's all this clean white marble with these beautiful blue domes, and it's all just shining in the sun. And then, then when you walk in, there's all this gold on the walls and, and blue tiles everywhere, and it's full of people. But as you're walking up to it, you notice something's off, but you can't quite put your finger on it, and it's not until you go inside that it hits you. Not a single joyful noise. Just a, a heartbreaking, somber silence that just weighs on you. What's even more heartbreaking is to see all of the people going in 
hour after hour, day after day, go, people going in to worship a God who, a false God who tells them to bow down not out of joy, but out of fear. And so here, the psalmist is writing to those who may have experienced that kind of worship, worship based on fear. Because when this psalm was written, the God of Israel was unlike any other God around. So this psalm would immediately get your attention if you weren't used to being in a place like this. And so for us today, the psalmist is saying that here in God's house and here among God's people, you're going to see and hear something completely different than what you've experienced before. You're going to see joy in those around you. And where does that joy come from? What is it that makes worshiping in this place different? Well, look at the end of verse 1. Here the psalmist says it's because of the rock of our salvation. Now, that's a military term, and the psalmist is using that to, to emphasize that the Lord not only defends us, but he also delivers us. He saves us. And so as we joyously come before the Lord, we do so. We enter into his presence First and foremost, being reminded of the majesty and mercy, the mercy in him saving us. It's a reminder that, that we as Christians have someone that we can consistently turn to, someone who is going to, be, going to be immovable, someone who is going to keep us safe, someone who is the rock of our salvation. So as we enter into God's presence, we do so not out of fear, but out of joy. Joy in the fact that we worship such a Savior, a Savior that defends and delivers us. And it's out of that recognition of being rescued that leads us to respond in worship, to, to respond thankfully and respond joyfully. Verse 2, it's this sense of joy and thanksgiving that, that makes us want to sing out in praise. But notice, notice it's not just one song but songs. So there's this idea of it being a continuous action, something that we consistently do. And we do so with one song after another. Songs that praise and give thanks to the rock of our salvation. We worship God because he's our savior, because the psalmist is going to also keep going. He's going to keep going. He's going to give us another thing. And that brings us to our second point. Look at verse three. So here, the psalmist is going to transition from speaking about God's mercy as Savior to his majesty as King. Now, verse 3 makes a bold proclamation because when you read that little word for there at the beginning of the verse, it's like it's saying, we declare. We declare that the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In other words, he's saying that if you are here, you need to know who this Lord is. You know, earlier we were talking about God's merciful rescue as the rock of our salvation. Now, we're talking about his majestic reign. And the psalmist wants to reinforce this majesty to us. He's saying, you may have seen other gods being worshipped, but they are nothing like our God. Not only is our God great, he is the king of them all. Nothing rules over our God. That's, that's the God that we worship here. Nothing is bigger, nothing is mightier. And that's why we can make such a joyful noise. Our God, the mightiest and greatest of them all, he's the one who's rescued us. But look at what the psalmist adds in verses 4 and 5. You know, what's beautiful about these verses is how they speak to what we can and cannot see. 
So God made everything you could possibly see and more. And it's all in his hands from the deepest depths to the highest heights. It's all his. And that repetition, that repetition in verses 4 and 5 reinforces this to us. It's his. It's his. It's all his. And this shows us just how far-reaching God's, God's kingdom is. But maybe you read that and it's still hard to, to kind of capture or comprehend how big that makes God. Maybe it makes God seem impossible to, to understand. Well, several years ago, I had uh, the very fortunate pleasure to have dinner with a man named Charlie Duke who helped me understand the, the significance uh, and majesty of statements like this. Charlie Duke was uh, an astronaut who was part of the Apollo space program. And if you go back and you listen to Neil Armstrong as he's landing on the moon, the guy on the other end of the radio back, back in Houston is Charlie. And so at this dinner, Charlie is telling us all about his life from the early days of him being a, an Air Force test pilot to the moment that he strapped himself to a rocket and launched on Apollo 16. Now, he told us about, about liftoff, about the four-day journey to get to the moon, but then he talked about the moment that he stepped out of the lunar module and started walking on the surface of the moon. And I was fascinated by every single thing he was saying. I had so many questions, and as he was talking about walking around on the moon, the one question I immediately had was, how was the view? And he kind of grinned. He kind of grinned and smiled at that. And he said, you know what? It's interesting. As you're standing there on the surface of the moon, the, the earth is just this beautiful blue jewel just hanging there. And he said, because they were in the sunlight, you couldn't see any of the stars around. So it was just this beautiful blue jewel hanging around the blackest nothing you could imagine. But then he paused. He paused for a moment. And he said, you know, it took some of the world's best technology and some of the greatest minds in the world to put Charlie on the moon. But he said in that moment, now looking back on it as, as a Christian, in that moment, it all seemed absolutely insignificant comparing to, see, comparing to what he was seeing God capable of doing. And that's what the psalmist wants us to see here. And in verse 6, it's that realization. It's that realization that should move us all to worship him again. This is why we're here. But, but even the manner in which we worship God is different. Look at the end of verse 6 and beginning of verse 7. For the second time in this passage, the, the psalmist personalizes our relationship with God. But here he takes it a step further. So we saw back in verses 4 and 5 that, that God is bigger than we could possibly imagine. And yet... And yet he decides to include us in his creation. He shares that creation with us. God could have created this world and everything in it and just left it at that. But no, he chose to make us as well. He is our maker. He chose to include us in this great creation. And God also chose to make himself known to us so that we can worship and enjoy him. So now think about all that we've been told about God so far, all of these incredible descriptions juxtaposed against verse 7. Here is the God of all gods, the King of all kings, and in verse 7, we're also told that he is our God. 
That doesn't mean that God somehow belongs to us, like our, our cell phones or our cars belong to us. No, our God, the God of all, is God to us. He is our Savior. He's the rock of our salvation, the source, the source of joy in our worship. But he's also our maker, the one who's graciously decided to share this creation with us. And it's only because of that fact that our worship here today is at all possible. Again, the psalmist is reminding us not only of the God we worship, but why we should worship him. Which now brings us to our third point. So again, our big question, why is God worthy of our worship? That's because God is also our redeemer. Now when we look at the last part of verse 7, we see yet another reminder of something we tend to forget. It says, today if you hear his voice. In other words, today, if you hear the word of God. Oftentimes, we, we tend to forget that, that this is God's word. That this book, this is God's voice. This is how God speaks to us. Now, whether it's a psalmist or a prophet or any other biblical author, it's still all God's word. It's all God's voice. And here at the end of verse 7, we get this, this quick little reminder that in this book, it is always God speaking. But stop for a second and think about everything that the psalmist has told us so far about his mercy, his majesty, his supremacy. And now, now that that same God who's created the world, the, the universe and everything in it, this God speaks directly to us. So what does God say? Look at verse 8, sort of the end of verse 7, beginning in verse 8. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. So first, he's exhorting us to listen to his voice, to listen to the word of God, but he's also taking us back in Israel's history, back to something that actually happened in Exodus when the people of God actually put God on trial. Here's what happens. God has God just delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians through the Red Sea, and now the people of God find themselves in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of this dangerous desert. And when they get to Massa and Meribah, they look around, and there's no water. So they begin to panic. They panic, verse 9, even though they had seen God's work. Day after day, God had been leading his people by this, by this cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. God, God had even been giving them um, bread from heaven. But even after all of that, in, in a place with no water, they just can't trust God to provide. And so they get angry. They're angry because they've gone exactly where God has led them but now they find themselves in a desolate and hopeless place. Now, now, some of us know exactly what this feels like. Maybe you've experienced a chronic illness, a death in your family. Maybe you've lost a job or gone through a financial hardship. In those moments in life, when it is heart-crushingly hard to trust God, the temptation is to think, really, God, this is where I ended up? Or you might even say, God, through it all, I trusted you. And it feels like you just led me here to this hopeless and desolate place. 
Now, in those difficult moments, the temptation is to think that God is somehow absent. Absent in those hardships, even though, verse 9, we have seen God's work. Just like Israel, our temptation is to only trust ourselves. But Psalm 95 is here to remind us, to remind us not to turn our hearts away from God. It it seems counterintuitive, but in those difficult moments, God's word reminds us to, to trust, to turn to and to trust the very one who put you in that situation in the first place. But see, that's Israel's problem. They're not doing that. In fact, verse 9, they put God to the test. They, to, they put him to the proof. In other words, they put God on trial and accuse God of not providing for them. And so at this trial, God shows up. God shows up at this trial and he stands on the rock as the accused party. And God stands in front of the very people that he promised to save. The very people he had just saved and in front of the elders of Israel. Moses, Moses takes out the staff, the, the same staff that parted the Red Sea, the same staff that, that turned the Nile to blood and brought the plagues. Moses takes out the staff, the staff that represents God's judgment and strikes the rock. And when he does, when Moses strikes the rock, water comes out. God provided his people with water. He, he provided for their need, but he also provided for the deeper need. Because not only did water come out of the rock, judgment was executed as well. But God's judgment didn't fall on God's people. It was brought down on God himself. Now, why would God do that? Well, it it certainly wasn't because the Israelites' accusations were true. And it's certainly not because God is guilty. But it's because we are. You see, just like Israel in verse 10 We are people whose hearts go astray. That's the deeper problem. It's in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul comments on this very passage, saying that the rock that God was standing on was Christ. It was Jesus, God the Son, that gets struck. Now this this is all to show how far God is willing to go to save his people, to redeem them, to rescue them. God went so far as to provide himself to remind his people of his promises. This is a reminder to us that our God does not rescue us from a distance. He's not not saving us from a far-off place like the moon. Just like at Massa and at Meribah, the New Testament tells us that, that God redeems us and rescues us by intimately entering into our situation. Just like God in the wilderness... Jesus would also be put on trial by the very people he came to save. And at this trial, the people of God would say he's guilty. They would say he needs to suffer. And as Christ is crucified on the cross, he would cry out in thirst as he suffered the wrath and judgment of God. Again, not because the Israelites' accusations were true, and certainly not because Christ was guilty but because we are. So God says, strike me. Strike me instead. God the Father sends Jesus, God the Son, to take the wrath and the judgment that we deserve for our sinful hearts. 
This is how much our God, our rock of salvation, our Redeemer, this is how much the one who holds the world in his hands, how he shows his love to this sinful world. Because without Christ, with, without our Redeemer, we have no hope. Without Christ, God's judgment is exactly what we see in verse 11. They shall not enter my rest. This is who our God is. He is infinitely gracious, but he is also steadfast in his promises. And this is what the psalmist is reminding us of. So why would the psalmist include this into a message that speaks so much about joy and worship? Because in moments of joy, we tend to forget. We forget the seriousness of our sin and our need for a savior. And so we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that God brought judgment down on himself to save, to redeem and rescue his people. And one of the keys to, to seeing the beauty of this psalm is to realize that it needs to be sung over and over. It, it, its beauty comes in its repetition. Because even in joyful moments, we have that tendency to forget. And so, we need these gracious reminders. Reminders that God is our Savior and Maker, but also that God is our Redeemer. From the very beginning of this psalm, we've been asked to come into God's presence. To come into the presence of our Maker and Redeemer. So as we do that, as we come into this place each week, even, even as the worries of the world weigh heavy on our hearts, may we be reminded over and over again that this is a place where that true joy is found and that the source of that joy is a God who is worthy of our worship. May we be, may we be reminded that God is our Savior, that God is our Maker, and that God is our Redeemer forever and ever. That's what the psalmist is inviting us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we dwell on the truths of this passage, may we, may we be honest with ourselves. Our hearts want to go astray. We, we think we can do better than you who holds the world in your hands. And so we pray, we pray please for forgiveness. In those moments of distrust, may we, may we be reminded of who you are. Thank you for graciously uh, entering into this sinful world to redeem us, to save us, to defend us. And we ask that our lives and our worship here would continuously joy in this beautiful truth. May your majesty always astound us and may your mercy always amaze us. But may we never tire of the sweet reminder of our need for a Redeemer. For it's in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.